0: This is the seventh in the series of podcasts by the British Society for Hematology, and today's topic is the investigation and management of follicular lymphoma. I'd like to apologise in advance for any potential difficulties with the sound quality. This is because of the current COVID 19 pandemic, we're having to record these podcasts remotely. I'm Kim Linton, and I'm a consultant medical oncologist at the Christie and also a clinical senior lecturer at the University of Manchester. And I'm particularly interested in improving treatments for patients with follicular lymphoma. And I do this in my capacity as chair of the NCRI low-grade lymphoma subgroup, where we are involved in developing and shaping the UK-led clinical trials, but also in the work that I do with NICE, with Lymphoma Action, BSH, and the pharma industry, where I provide expert advice and I'm involved in developing clinical guidelines to help us share the latest evidence-based knowledge. The current BJH guideline on the investigation and management of follicular lymphoma was recently published in the British Journal of Hematology. It provides clinicians with a comprehensive, practical and well-balanced set of guidelines that's been based on the latest evidence. And in this podcast, I'm going to highlight some of the major and practice-changing developments that have come about since we first published the follicular guidelines in 2011. There are four main areas that we're going to focus on. The first is around important changes around the use of PET scanning. We'll look at the advances in the upfront management of patients with asymptomatic as well as symptomatic advanced stage disease. Look at high risk disease and high grade transformation. And finally advances in the management of relapse with some horizons scanning of promising drugs in development. Looking to PET scanning first, this is now recommended for the staging of all FDG-AVID lymphomas, and that's in line with the 2014 Lugano classification, based on the fact that PET CT is much more sensitive than CT for the detection of nodal as well as extranodal disease. We know that the majority of uh, FL cases are FDG-AVID, and this being the case, PET should be considered for the baseline staging, particularly where scanning is available and reimbursed in the UK. But where PET is particularly valuable is for the confirmation of early stage disease where involved field radiotherapy is under consideration. Uh, It's been shown that around 10 to 40% of patients assessed as having localized disease by CT are actually upstaged by PET scanning. And as we know, these patients don't do particularly well with radiotherapy alone. But PET isn't sensitive for detecting bone marrow disease in follicular lymphoma, so if you have a case of suspected localised disease, these patients need a PET CT scan and a bone marrow biopsy to complete the assessment for early stage disease. Patients who undergo this assessment with PET and bone marrow have a much better outcome with radiotherapy. And this was uh, shown recently with the results of an ILROG clinical study showing that now about over two thirds of patients are still in remission at five years using this approach, which compares favourably with a historic control of around 50%. We also know that the optimal approach and dosing schedule for the treatment of radiotherapy for localised disease is 24 gray. This is based on results of the long term results of the Fort clinical trial, which were presented last year, showing that 24 gray produces fewer relapses compared to 4 gray and should be the preferred strategy for people in the curative setting. PET is not only more sensitive for staging of of, uh, follicular lymphoma, but it's also much more sensitive and prognostic for CT response assessment at the end of treatment. Probably one of the largest studies done in follicular lymphoma was a sub-analysis of the Gallium clinical trial, which showed that compared to CT, which called complete response in around 30% of patients, PET-CT called complete metabolic response in 87% of patients. Importantly, the PET was also much more prognostic than CT for progression-free survival and this sub-analysis showed that those who achieve a complete metabolic response have a particularly good outcome. They have longer progression-free survival and overall survival compared to patients who don't achieve complete metabolic response. These patients who make up around 10 to 15% of patients have around a five times higher risk of early death and disease progression. So for the first time, we have a tool in PET that's not only more accurate for response prediction, but also a really useful tool for early risk stratification of patients and potentially for directing PET-directed therapy, which is the subject of current ongoing clinical trials in follicular lymphoma if we move on now to the first line treatment of advanced stage asymptomatic patients watchful waiting has is the accepted standard of care for these patients based on the fact that there is no survival advantage for early intervention and it's Important to note that watchful waiting can delay treatment for about two to three years on average, but people who are over the age of 70 can do particularly well with watchful waiting as around 40% of them have shown no signs of relapse um, or death due to lymphoma within a 10 year period. The updated guidelines have referenced a new cost-effectiveness analysis done by the NICE guideline group, looking at data from the NCRI watch and wait trial. They showed that rituximab, and in particular four weeks of rituximab monotherapy, is a cost-effective strategy compared to watchful waiting. They've recommended that as an alternative option uh, to watchful waiting, which may be a particularly attractive strategy for those patients who are under the age of 70, where the rates of progression during watchful waiting are definitely higher than those over the age of 70. If we now move on to symptomatic advanced stage patients who require therapy, the standard of care for a long time in this first line setting has been to use rituximab in combination with either CVP, CHOP or bendamustine. Uh, CVP is the least effective of these chemotherapy backbones and maybe the preferred option in older patients. But apart from that, there's really no hard evidence to guide the specific choice of chemotherapy. And in fact, most clinicians base these decisions on the age of the patient, their fitness, and whether or not they've got high-grade transformation clinically suspected. And in those cases, our CHOP is preferred. The Gallium trial that we mentioned earlier is well known to many. It was a large international multicenter randomized clinical trial which took place in over 1,200 patients and compared the second generation anti-CD20 monoclonal antibody over in a head-to-head comparison with rituximab in combination with CDP, CHOP or bendamustine and then followed by maintenance rituximab in the responding patients. This was a landmark study, and its results, published in 2017, um, led to practice changes in practice, showing that obinutuzumab is superior to rituximab for progression-free survival, and reduces the risk of progression by about a third across all patient subsets. Uh, obinutuzumab also improves time to next treatment and the clearance of minimal residual disease. At this stage of relatively short follow-up, survival is the same between the two antibody arms. But as we alluded to earlier, um, regardless of the treatment received, if patients achieve a complete metabolic response by PET criteria, they do have a longer survival. And it was based on the results of this trial that NICE in 2018 approved Obenituzumab chemotherapy as an option for patients with FLIPPY score two or above. And the rationale for FLIPPY2 rather than all risk patients was the fact that there was slightly less benefit in the FLIPPY1 patient group. The the Gallium trial didn't randomize the chemotherapy treatments or indeed attempt to compare outcomes by chemotherapy regimens. But it was interesting to see that the patients receiving the traditionally less effective CVP chemotherapy had much better MRD negative rates when the treatment was combined with obinutuzumab compared with rituximab. And in fact, all three regimens achieved over 90% MRD clearance when combined with obinutuzumab. And this difference in MRD negative rates uh, by antibody was more pronounced for CHOP and CVP. And this has led to an anecdotal change in practice with an increase uh, in use of CVP in combination with Ovidituzumab, particularly for the older patients. But it's important to remember that there are disadvantages to obinutuzumab and these must be carefully balanced against any potential benefits when considering individual patient factors, especially considering that currently the choice of antibody doesn't seem to influence overall survival. Longer term follow-up may of course change that. Obinutuzumab is the more toxic of the two antibodies. It produces higher rates of infusion related reactions, albeit these are manageable. More neutropenia, more severe infection, and more second malignancies across all treatment arms. So these patients need to be more carefully selected and monitored, particularly for infections. Uh, Interestingly, most of the adverse events in the Gallium trial were in the bendamustine treated patients. And that wasn't just during induction, but also into the maintenance phase and in the follow-up phase when late infections were still being observed. And it's important that clinicians take this into consideration when they're selecting patients for bendamustine based therapy taking into consideration and carefully balancing the risks and benefits of maintenance rituximab um, or obinutuzumab. Bearing in mind that maintenance therapy doesn't improve overall survival, there may be additional risks during the current COVID-19 pandemic and after bendamustine, uh, the benefits of maintenance are certainly less secure or certain than they are after RCBP or after CVP or CHOL. Moving on to high-risk disease, there's been a lot of focus on high-risk follicular lymphoma ever since the LymphoCare study published in 2017 and identified a subset of 20% of patients that have early treatment failure associated with early death. Their five-year overall survival was 50% compared to 90%. Uh, for patients who didn't have early treatment failure. And in this context, early treatment failure was defined as disease progression within 24 months of the start of frontline or CHOP chemotherapy, the so-called POD24 group. And the prognostic significance of POD24 has since been validated independently by several other groups and across many different treatment types. Uh, Up to about a quarter of patients with a POD24 event have been shown to have high-grade transformation. And people who fail highly effective therapy, um, such as treatment with are more likely to have a transformation event than failure after a less effective therapy like rituximab monotherapy or or RCBP. With the advent of rituximab routinely used in the treatment pathways, the rate of high grade transformation has diminished and is now reported to be around 3% at five years and 7% at 10 years but nevertheless, patients who have high grade transformation still have significantly inferior outcomes compared to those who relapse with follicular lymphoma. And so it is really important to identify these patients for more effective therapy. The role of PET in predicting transformation is interesting, um, but highly controversial. For quite some time, people thought that a high SUV of greater than 10 was regarded as a useful predictor. But we now have some more convincing data again from the Gallium trial that there's actually significant overlap between the SUV SUV max values for patients with and without high-grade transformation. So SUV max alone should really not raise concerns for high-grade transformation in a patient who doesn't have clinical suspicions for transformation. Those that are clinically suspected of undergoing transformation, irrespective of the PET findings, should have a biopsy. And in this regard, a PET might be quite useful to identify an appropriate FDG-AVID target. And interestingly, there is a school of thought that our CHOP may be the preferred treatment for people with highly highly FDG-AVID FL, or indeed grade three disease. And this was based on some data that was presented last year in 2019. If we now move on to the advances in the management of relapsed follicular lymphoma, um, we know that almost all patients with advanced stage disease, irrespective of highly effective frontline therapy, will relapse during the course of their illness. And unfortunately, many patients experience multiple relapses. And one of the most important developments since the publication of the guideline has been the NICE approval of rituximab and lenalidomide, the so-called R-squared combination. This approval was based on the results of the AUGMENT trial showing that R-squared produces a median progression-free survival of 39 months in patients with relapsed FL. This R-square combination provides an attractive option from the second line onwards. And for me particularly, it's a useful option for people who have exhausted standard immunochemotherapy options. They've become refractory to chemotherapy or intolerant of its side effects. And also for those who are seeking oral therapy, which may well be a preferred option during the current COVID-19 pandemic to reduce hospital footfall and uh, where there's reduced day unit capacity for IV treatments. At the moment, unfortunately, we have no data to inform the choice between immunochemotherapy or R-squared based on efficacy grounds as there's no direct head-to-head comparison between these two regimens. But we have seen some encouraging data suggesting that R-squared is probably at least as effective as uh, rituximab chemotherapy that's based on data from the relevance trial, and also some sub-analyses showing that r squared may prolong progression free survival compared to outcomes from the most recent previous therapy. The combination can also overcome rituximab resistance, but please bear in mind that the license is only open to patients with rituximab sensitive disease, as the rituximab refractory patients were excluded from the augmented trial. There are two important ongoing trials, the NCRI-PETREA trial and the Magnify trial, which are both interestingly evaluating maintenance questions, but they will provide further data to refine the role of R-squared in the management of FL. The option that is now available for people with rituximab refractory disease is bendamustine in combination with obinutuzumab followed by obinutuzumab maintenance. And this uh, treatment was NICE approved in 2017 based on the results of the Gadlin clinical trial, which showed that the combination almost doubled progression-free survival to around 26 months compared to bendamustine alone. The guideline also includes a really important focus on stem cell transplantation and advocates the early use of this approach in the transplant eligible relapsed FL patients, especially those who have an early relapse or a pod 24 event um, with pool data suggesting that around a third of patients may derive long-term benefit after being autographed. But the outcomes for people with multiply relapsed follicular lymphoma remain poor and newer novel agents are needed, very much needed to improve outcomes in these patients. This is a really exciting time for research in follicular lymphoma as there are a large number of promising agents in development. These include the PI3 kinase inhibitors known to be active in this disease, but with some toxicity concerns. So current trials are investigating interrupted dosing schedules to improve treatment tolerance. The other important group are the intravenous and subcutaneously delivered CD20 by CD3 by specific agents, which are showing really promising activity across the landscape of B uh, non-Hodgkin lymphomas, including follicular lymphoma. And so too, the CD19-directed CAR T agents, which are soon to be available on clinical trials uh, for patients with uh, relapsed, relapsed follicular lymphoma in the UK. Another very promising agent on the horizon is the EZH2 inhibitor tazemetostat. This was recently FDA approved for the treatment of relapsed FL at secondary relapse or those with EZH2 mutations. There are also several antibody drug conjugates and radioimmunotherapy agents that are in development uh, as potential new therapies for follicular lymphoma. And one of the most important goals of all of this research will be to identify which of these agents may improve the outlook for people with high risk disease. So if we wrap up, we've reviewed the BSH guidelines on the diagnosis and management of follicular lymphoma and discussed important updates covering the use of PET staging and response assessment in follicular lymphoma, emphasising particularly the importance of PET in the evaluation and management of early stage disease and also in the response and prognostic assessment and important research is ongoing to explore pet adapted therapy. Rituximab monotherapy is a cost-effective alternative to watchful waiting in patients with asymptomatic advanced stage disease, and this may present an attractive option for some patients. Although what I didn't mention previously is that this indication falls outside of UK marketing authorisation, which is worth bearing in mind. Obinutuzumab in combination with CDP, uh, CHOP or bendamustine Prolongs progression-free survival in the first-line setting and should be considered for patients with flpi 2 score disease or above, making sure that there's a balance between the efficacy and the trade-off of higher toxicity. Obinutuzumab, bendamustine and rituximab, lenalidomide are now two new approved effective options, both for, uh, or respectively for rituximab, refractory and rituximab-sensitive relapsed FL and there's a large range of other promising novel therapies in active development for this disease. The treatment landscape for follicular lymphoma is becoming very complicated. And really one of the most important goals going forward is that we focus on uh, how to sequence these therapies more effectively, how to develop more personalized approaches so we can better identify the most appropriate patient for the best treatment. This of course is not a trivial goal. And the prognostic significance of early treatment failure is a very hot topic and ongoing research efforts are aimed both at early identification of these patients and also crucially on the development of more effective treatment strategies to overcome their poor prognosis. So I'd like to conclude this podcast by thanking you for listening and inviting all of you to visit the BSH website uh, where you'll find more exciting podcasts from the society about various important guidelines. Thank you.